The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to After the Jump live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org or download the podcast on iTunes anytime. Before I get started today, I just wanted to remind you we're in the final week of fundraising for Heritage Radio. Um, This station is a nonprofit member-supported radio station that is millions strong with people tuning in from over 200 countries. We care so much about education and entertainment and creativity. It's not just food. It's about everything that the creative community cares about. So if you enjoy this show, or any of the other 30-plus shows we broadcast free online every week, I hope you'll consider checking out heritageradionetwork.org to make a donation. For the last two weeks, I took a radio break and spent a good chunk of time unplugging and exploring the cat skills with my wife, Julia. And there's something about hiking around waterfalls and swimming in freezing mountain water that does a lot to clear your head. And one of the things that kept coming to mind was the importance of the people and causes that we choose to surround ourselves with. I've talked about the importance of mentors, support systems, and trusted colleagues for years, but these days the ideas of being more mindful about who I choose to surround myself with seems more important than ever. Because running any business, whether it's creative or not, not only gets harder as the years go on, but it becomes really crucial to have people around you that are smart, talented, honest, and inspiring. I'm always updating my own personal version of that list, but right up there at the top will always be two amazing women, Jill Singer and Monica Kemsarov. Jill and Monica are the founders of the incredible online magazine Sight Unseen and the most creative and thought-provoking design show that happens in New York City every year, Sight Unseen Offsite. In a time when it feels like every lifestyle blog, publication, and television network is trying to find a way to cast the widest net possible and appeal to the most mainstream audience, Sight Unseen continues to focus on curating content and events that highlight the most exciting and innovative work. They've combined their pursuit of the cutting edge with consulting and editorial services that companies like the Ace Hotels, Urban Outfitters, Creatures of Comfort, and Shinola have trusted for years. And today I'm thrilled to have them both here to talk about the inspiration for the work they're doing today, what inspires them and keeps them going, and how they balance curation and profit to keep their business going. So Jill and Monica, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you both. I've admired your work for a very long time since you guys launched in 2009, and I've really been impressed with your ability to not only stay ahead of and predict trends, but your ability to build a brand that I trust endlessly for cutting edge design and information on what's new, what's interesting, and sort of the coolest and brightest artists that are just around the corner. So I want to get to the heart of what inspired Sight Unseen. What sort of uh, inspired you guys to launch, and did you have a mission statement or guiding principle when you started? Um, Monica and I both worked at ID Magazine um, for about four years before we started Sight Unseen. And when we were there, one of the things that excited us most was kind of going into a designer's life and seeing how they worked and how they lived. Um, And when we left ID, that was the kind of thing that we really wanted to focus on. So at the beginning of Sight Unseen, the mission statement was very much about 
bringing people inside like the behind the scenes world of people who are living this creative life. Um, and we had, a t- we had factory tours, we had studio visits, we had, um, at home with which go inside someone's apartment, obviously. Um, and we also had kind of behind the scenes of like making. So we had like process stories, um, people's techniques, little deep dives into that sort of thing. Um, and we still do all of those things, but over the past five years, um, you know, like the internet has changed so much in general and like the world we're in, we've, we're in has changed so much. Um, so we've begun to incorporate kind of like a, a little more of like a Tumblr feel where it's a, steady stream of amazing visual images that people who are just like looking for creative inspiration can come to every day. That's, I mean, we're going to get into that, that <laughs> shift in a second, but Monica, how do you guys choose the artists and the products that you write about on the site? Well, honestly, I would say we just trust our instincts a lot. I think that's as you, um, grow and develop as a magazine editor, even it's, I think something you learn to do pretty quickly because you have a limited amount of space and there's only so much you can fit into like a a print magazine. So I think our backgrounds in print journalism definitely helped us be able to sort of trust ourselves and just, you know, look at what we liked and assume that our readers would like that too. So then we moved to the web. Um, It's a lot of doing research, being aware, following Pinterest feeds, following Instagram feeds, reading other people's blogs. And then, you know, if we have that feeling about something, you know, we just go with it. So, mm-hmm. um, how do art? I mean, one thing I'm interested in is that I feel like even though you just said you read all the other people's sites and mm-hmm. Pinterest pages, I feel like you guys write about things way before most blogs do. And I mean, as somebody who does a lot of their own research, I'm constantly amazed, and I'm like, I've never heard of that person. I don't <laughs> know how they found that. And not only do you write about them first, but you've managed to get them to like sell something in your shop, which takes mm-hmm. a while to plan ahead of time. That's very impressive. Um, how do you think artists and designers can stand out? in a world where there's billions of Pinterest feeds and there's something kind of new and different every day? What are the things that sort of make someone stand out for you? Um, I mean, for us, it's just having a really amazing aesthetic sensibility. I mean, we we like quality objects and people who are doing something new and beautiful. So that's obviously the best way to stand out is by making good work. But um, <laughs> definitely one of our biggest pet peeves is bad photography. Which is obvious, but I mean, it's it's so obvious and yet people still, you know, don't always take the time to like have their things photographed properly and, you know, when they're putting it out in the world, like to present it in the best light. Because I think that that's when you only have so much time in your day and you're running through these feeds really quickly. Like if you see a really nice image of something, that's obviously you're going to take notice of that first. And when people um, pitch us to the website, it's funny because sometimes you'll just get someone who sends us an email that's like, check out my website. And that's like real, <laughs> like that's asking me to be proactive about it. I want someone to send me their beautifully photographed pictures so I can just see it in my email inbox. Um, but it's funny because it's almost the opposite on Instagram because sometimes someone will tag someone on Instagram and we'll just click it and then you're presented with this amazing thing. So it's kind of worked both ways. Well, but that's actually another strategy is building a strong network and, you know, showing your work to your friends and, mm-hmm. and getting it in to the public so that your friends can come photograph it and put it on Instagram. I mean, a lot of the things that we find are just people taking a picture of their friend's piece and being like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And then we as curators know to be like, okay, let's follow up on that. Like, let's find out what that is because we've never seen it before. So 
Absolutely. Um, well, that leads me right into the question I want to ask most about anyone working online right now, which is you guys launched in 2009, but I feel like the way the internet is consumed has completely changed since then. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you guys changed editorially since sort of the the rise of social media? Um, and how have you changed the way that you look for people since that? Editorially? Deep <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard because we've when we started, we our goal was to have really strong, really in-depth content. And we like wanted to have... We didn't understand why the, I, the structure or the feel of a print magazine couldn't be reproduced online. So in the beginning, like when we started, it was all like these long stories with a lot of text and like tons of reporting. And I think the, the longer we've gone al- along, the more we've realized that we, have, we can't be so strict about that. We can't be so, you know married to that idea so we have introduced like shorter faster content i mean there's just no way there's no there's also no way to post once a day if you're doing these insane long stories with you know without a huge team and i think yeah the internet now like really requires that you have all these this content like constantly constantly churning so i think it's been <laughs> just like remembering resigning that. ourselves to that <laughs> reality a little bit um has there been any inspiration in that change? I mean, that that sense of resignation is something I lived in and like yeah. wallowed in yeah. for a good year of just like, does nobody care about great writing mm-hmm. or about the backstory behind something? They just want it sort of like in short form. And then after a year, I was like, yeah. yep, that's what that's they want. What want. So I don't have any choice. But for me, I, I found Instagram is like this exciting platform to produce content that's short but still interesting. Right. Have you guys been inspired to sort of write or release things differently? I think um, we are, I mean, that's actually kind of the nice thing is even though we let go of that like long form journalism. Well, we still um, do it. But yeah, we're still, and we're still known for the content behind the images. So that's been nice. So even though we produce shorter um, stories, they're still like chock full of content. Um, so that I think has, has changed. And frankly, I've grown to like the shorter stories more because I don't know, there's just something... Like, I always put off the longer stories for, like, months and months and mm-hmm. months and months. And um, it's just a little bit more fulfilling um, but, and honestly, the way we work now. I think we've gotten a little addicted. Because it, it, there is, like, a little adrenaline rush when you're like, oh, my God, we're the first ones to know about this. We're going <laughs> to tell everybody. Which is funny, but it's like <laughs> it becomes this little, like, thing that you get addicted to of, like, you know, you know the idea that people can find new things on our site like we're kind of like really into that so yeah sometimes it means that you can't interview this person and wait around for them to get you a ton of content you just want to like push it out really quickly and just show it off to people so I think yeah it has changed and and Pinterest and Instagram are definitely venues in which we tend to do that but it is it's all a lot of it is still like linked back to the site like it's not like it's become its own entity it's still very integrated with what we do on the site but I think also what those um you know, social media outlets do is just sort of help people get to know your uh, point of view even better. Like they see your aesthetic and it sort of reinforces that you know what you're doing and that you're, you have a, you know, an interesting point of view that's like, um, you know, of the moment, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you guys, and this is sort of a bit off topic, but I'm curious to see, because both of you come from um, a print background, mm-hmm. do you think there's a place for long form design journalism anymore? Do you think it's going to be relegated to print? Do you think there are websites where that will still thrive? Or do you feel like this is an inevitable departure? I, okay. I would say it's, <laughs> I think it's probably relegated to print to be yeah. honest, because, and I think it's totally a matter of, um, practical matters. I mean, I think people, when they're online reading blogs, they're online at work. 
Mm-hmm. They don't have time to like sit down for three hours and like you know read online. I think it's more like when they're home, you know, with a magazine in front of them. For some reason, that experience is still more conducive to taking time. And I think even when we did have only long form stories on the site and people were still like really into them and were saying to us like we so appreciate that you are filling this role and like you know making an effort to have good content I still don't even think they were reading the stories to be honest they were looking at the pictures they <laughs> yeah. appreciate it but they were looking at the pictures I think I mean I think that's something that's pretty easy to statistically back up and yeah. we've done that sort of testing and you can tell when people leave comments that haven't gotten through the whole article <laughs> yeah. because they're commenting on something but it's nice to know there's a percentage of people who care mm-hmm. we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about print versus web or maybe not versus but in addition to web mm-hmm. um, but I want to talk about your shop uh, which is probably my favorite place to go to discover things that are new and interesting and at this point all things geometric which I love <laughs> um, what inspired you guys to launch a shop and how do you choose what goes into it when we started the shop um, I mean I think part I mean part of it obviously was financial we needed um, kind of like another revenue stream and the nice thing about our shop is it kind of runs itself a little bit I mean besides the actual curating of objects um, a lot of the designers drop ship the items so all we have to do is send an invoice um, or if we have to do it ourselves it's like just not that big of a deal um, so for you know like obviously like there were financial reasons but part of it was because we were discovering all these talents and um, at the beginning the, I guess now too the shop was about um, mostly people who weren't jewelry designers creating jewelry as like a way to experiment with materials or like just play around with something that they weren't able to do um, even in their own studio or for someone else. Um, And so that's, that's been really nice is we wanted to be able to commission something ourselves to give designers the opportunity to like do this little experiment that was just kind of fun and then put it out in the world. And, um, and it also was just like another way to kind of cement our point of view. Like we launched it kind of a long time ago. I think it was, 2011. So we were relatively new at that point. Um, And I think that's really helped grow our audience. Absolutely. I think one of the things I love most about your shop is the way you contextualize objects that I've seen in other stores that I think people walk right past because Mm -hmm. they're put next to something that's inexpensive, not handmade, not Mm -hmm. made domestically. And if you don't curate those things well, people don't understand the price point or the story behind it. Perfect examples, Tanya Aginiga's rope bracelets that are dyed. And I am a huge, huge fan of hers. And I've seen those in several shops where they're next to like really inexpensive plastic Mm -hmm. things. And Mm -hmm. then the cost of that doesn't make any sense. And I think you guys do a really good job of juxtaposing things that are almost fine art pieces um, up against pieces that maybe have a price point that are a bit more relatable. How do you guys consider price point when stocking the the store? I think that people, I mean, we've seen this also in having the store for a while, but um, I think the more of a statement something makes, like the more you can, you know, wear a plain dress and put this on and it's like a big statement piece. I think people are willing to spend more money on that. I mean, I don't think people... um, I don't think most people are savvy enough to really look at something and break down the cost in their mind of like materials. I think it's more about the impact that something makes. So if there's something larger or something that has like a really strong impact, we're okay with, you know, pricing it a little little higher, but the designers themselves price it, you know, based on materials and and labor involved. So generally we, that's pretty, um, it makes sense. I mean, sometimes we'll have a piece where the person's put a lot of work into it, but you can't tell <laughs> by the appearance. And that's just, we know it won't work for our audience. So I mean, we try to keep everything below a certain point at which people are less comfortable purchasing online as well, which I think is, 
online versus in person is sometimes tough with these types of objects. And for that reason, we also tend to sell more like necklaces and housewares than smaller things like rings or ear- or earrings because that's the kind of thing you want to try on I think mm-hmm. that's a good point and I think that price point which we'll get into in a second mm-hmm. I think is is fascinating because I think that that sets your part your store apart from a lot of other ones um, we're going to take a very quick break and then I'm going to ask you some nitty gritty questions about the shop so right. stay tuned we'll be right back Hi I'm Michael Harlan Turkel host of the food scene This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else, and we need your help. Heritage Radio Network is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa Magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're talking about curation, profit, and creativity with the founders of Sight Unseen, Jill Singer and Monica Kemsterov. So I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of curation versus profit and scalability, because I think there are so many of these sort of like interesting sort of art-based e-commerce shops popping up these days, especially in the design community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really frequently wonder how people are staying afloat with them because I think so often there are things that are either one-offs or they have a price point that's difficult to manage. How do you guys sort of choose which objects you're going to carry that you maybe like, do you carry things that you think maybe won't sell a ton, but are important sort of show pieces to have in there? Yes. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because I think when someone comes to a shop page, their eye does an initial scan. They're automatically, like, even if they don't know they're doing it, they're, like, assessing, like, from their first impression. And I think having those pieces is really important to make them think, like, oh, wow, this is cool. Like, I'm going to check it out. I don't know. It, Mm -hmm. it, It helps engage them, like, get them past, like, the doorstep or whatever. Mm-hmm. And for people who are also in our community, it helps to have certain names on the site. Yeah. Um, it sort of just like lends the, the shop a little bit of a higher cachet. <laughs> Absolutely. How do you guys handle the issue um, of scalability? I mean, I, I know I've talked about this a lot with the girls from Of A Kind before and how it's it's editorially advantageous to have things that are like limited amounts and one of a kind. But it can be difficult when you're dealing with somebody who's making domestically and making by hand that it limits how many goods you can sell. Um, have you considered branching out of that sort of smaller edition model? Or do you guys think you'll continue to stay with like handmade domestic goods that sort of limit how large you can scale it? Yeah, I think we'll probably stick with handmade things just because, um, well, right now we do a lot of things made to order, which is sort of unusual for a shop and not the best business practice, but (laughs) it works for us because then we're able to have these things that we don't know if they will sell. We don't want the designer to take a risk. We don't, 
have the time or the energy to take the risk either ourselves. Um, so we've just done it this way. And so far it's been fine. Like people are, because they understand that it's handmade, they're willing to wait longer. Um, so I think there's like a built-in um, understanding for that. I mean, I, we never really discussed doing anything that was more mass-produced. I think just because we, uh, we're we still focused on the website and still focused on that part of our business. And I think that trying to compete with stores who are selling the same thing or who are you know uh, operating on a much bigger level than us is sort of not exactly where our interest lies at the moment. One of the things I always like to talk to people about who run shops is um, the idea of how you explain cost to people. And I think you guys do this really well, um, whether it's intentional or not, by giving people behind the scenes stories of makers. Because I think that connection is something that really drives home this person, what they need to live and how that connects to the price, which after you get somebody's backstory, I feel a price always feels a bit smaller and manageable. Um, Mm -hmm. Was that backstory a conscious decision or what other ways do you guys sort of explain someone's process and cost to justify the price tag? It was just, it was intentional. We built like a little sidebar into the design of the shop um, so that if we had a story on the main site about the maker, it would link back to that so that people could contextualize what they were buying. Um, we also try to do a little bit of it in the description of the item itself. We tell you you know, exactly how it was made, what it's made from, what inspired it, that sort of thing. Um, and then I think just like being in the context of our site I mean, some people, I guess, probably never make the connection at all. They don't necessarily click the logo. They don't necessarily click the editorial story. Um, but yeah, somehow they're still getting it just because of, of the mix of items that's that's on offer, I think. And also, like, beyond the, the, just the shop part of things, like when we launched the site in 2009, actually, that was a huge driver behind what we were doing. Like, there was this moment in time where we felt like, you know, all these design objects we'd put in ID, like, people were more interested in knowing how they were made, and they're like suddenly everyone was curious, like, oh, you know, is this some crappy thing that came from a factory somewhere? Or is this, you know, a nice item that I'm buying? What am I spending my money on? You know, like, where does it come from? Who's making it? How well is it made? And I think because there was that moment in the air, it sort of underscored, like, this approach that we were taking. Um, And then, yeah, it works on a smaller level in our shop. But in general, it's something that we've always been sort of tuned into. Do you see that that movement in general? And this is something I talk about all the time, and mm-hmm. it crosses over so much with heritage because the prime, the majority of shows here are about food, and I think the food community has so embraced this yeah, idea totally. of like shop local, you know, eat amounts that make sense for you, and <laughs> don't like go crazy with buying too much stuff. But that hasn't really crossed over to the design community in the same sort of full overarching way. Do you think that we're moving in that direction in design, or do you feel like it's going to be a slow build? Because I find, as someone who deals with like a slightly more mass market audience, yeah. that people still they want that handmade thing, but they don't quite want to pay for that Absolutely. handmade thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, I mean, we actually, it's funny because we work on a, we don't work on a mass market scale. So in our world, people are like really into handmade, like craftsmanship and stuff. But yeah, I, I see it all the time. Like, it's, like if I go home and like talk to my brother and he's like furnishing his new house, like, yeah, he appreciates really well-designed objects, but he's just not going to spend the money. You know, it's like, it's, and it's, it's the same people who will spend on four different pairs of shoes, but like would never spend like $800 on a chair. So it's, I think it's, I don't know if it will change. I mean, yeah, I think it's just a weird mindset that people value. They have an innate value of certain things and they, they're going to invest in certain, in some things and not others. I don't know. What responsibility do you think editorial has to get people to make that mind switch that they seem to do with food like a lot more easily? 
Well, I think, yeah, we, I mean, we, <laughs> or do you think we would like to take, yeah, yeah. we would, we want the responsibility. Yeah. Like that's, that's exactly what we want to do. And I, and I actually, to your point though, I think it is evolving because I think there was a point where no one cared and at least now they care. It, maybe they haven't started spending that way, but I think at least now they care. And then like, yeah, maybe the next step is. You and that's know. why actually there's like a certain like subset of stores that kind of fascinates us. Like this space between like design within reach and Ikea is like little sweet spot. And I think that there are more and more retailers popping up that are kind of filling that space. And that's great for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that'll really help kind of. Well, and then I, I just saw on design sponge or I, I was researching and I saw the whole thing about West Elm mm-hmm. investing in makers. So I, yeah, there is a lot of mm-hmm. more crossover than there ever was before, which is good. What do you think designers can do to educate sort of the buying public about the cost of their work? Because I feel like, I think editorial does do a lot. I think that mm-hmm. the majority of blogs and publications do a lot these days to really try to put that backstory, the cost of making, all of that stuff into the forefront. But I feel like there's this gap where I think makers kind of just go, well, this is what it costs and, and stand back. But I feel like there's a lot more that they could be doing. Do you think there's anything artists could be doing? I know, because I still think the majority of people understand the cost and they still mm-hmm. won't spend the money because they're like, well, I don't have that money. You know, like, I, I don't know. It's like a weird disconnect. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like if it's something through a gallery, you know, like often like a gallery site will have like a video of like the crazy balloons that they had to do and like drip the wax over and like you see like the, the whole process behind something. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, designers, maybe if they're, <laughs> but who's going to designers websites either? They're just really going to the shops. No, I mean, that's in, true. in the mass. Mm-hmm. Well, the I think the one thing that's interesting is about social media. When you guys were talking about discovering people through Instagram, mm-hmm. I feel like that's been the one sort of pioneering platform where makers can explain what their process is yeah, like and where they get things and how long it takes and all that stuff that I think if you're following an artist and you understand, mm-hmm. oh, I watched for two weeks mm-hmm. the process of them making this pot, like firing this pot, glazing it, all this stuff, you understand how much time goes into something. But I feel like sometimes all, if all that responsibility falls on a shop, it can be difficult to sort of yeah. justify the end price. Well, I think if the shops have designer names on the pieces, that's a huge help because you know it's a person making it and not like, you know, just an anonymous churning out of objects. Um, so there are things that shops can do. But yeah, I mean, I think if designers, you know, I wish more designers would submit to us with like well-documented process. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes if we get a piece we like, we're like, okay, well, how can we tell the backstory of this? And then we ask for photos and all they have is like, an iPhone snapshot of like, that's like out of focus, you know, if document, if designers would documented more and, you know, like really try to put it out there. Yeah. It could only help. But yeah. that is one of my favorite things about Instagram, just like this pulling back the curtain and you see if someone like dropped it out of the kiln or like you see, mm-hmm. and that's, I think really helped. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you guys about web versus print um, and sort of pull back towards editorial for a second. Um, on your, I love that on your about page, you guys call Sight Unseen an online magazine and not a blog. Um, <laughs> why did you guys choose that distinction and what does that mean to you? I mean, that does kind of date back to the beginning when, it was, when we were like so... I mean, we actually, when we started, we talked about starting a print magazine and it really was just the financial concerns and a little bit like the logistics of having a graphic designer as well. Um, on staff that kind of put the kibosh on that. Um, So that does date back to that. And also that we really did not want to be beholden at the beginning to posting that frequently. Um, And that's what a blog felt like to us, something where there was tons of content every day. Yeah, quick. Um, And we still really don't have that. We really do post one to two times a day. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it was just more about creating like an editorial feel than just... 
like a hey look at this feel which did feel like more like a I don't know, like an early version of social media. And also, I think, um, and we're getting a little bit better at this, but in the beginning, we didn't really put ourselves into the site. I mean, the way that blogs do, there wasn't a lot of like, you know, we always said, and we still do this to some degree, but we say we, we never say like I. Um, And I think that comes from our editorial background of just like, you know, having this... um, you know, this idea of like the way we speak to a reader or whatever. But, but even that's new. I mean, before it really would have been like very like third person, like mm-hmm. this is this person's background. Yeah. And now it's like, and it's partly because our network has grown so much. So we actually do know all these people now. And we have like a bit of a personal connection that lends the editorial story, just like some more interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that comes up a lot more. And I think we've also just learned to write in a more informal way. Like yeah. we were all, we were writing magazine articles at the beginning. <laughs> I mean, that's what we were doing. So mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you guys about print publications because I find them so fascinating and I love that you've already considered doing one. I always feel like what you do would lend itself really well to a print mm-hmm. publication. Um, what are the print publications that you guys look to most these days that you think are good, whether or not they're design magazines? Well, for design magazines, we like Designio out of London, that, um, which was started by a girl who used to work at Icon, Johanna um, Agerman-Ross. That one's great. And their website's great too. So like, even mm-hmm. if you don't ever see the print magazine you're you're okay yeah um (laughs) they um they started a little bit before we did and i think um we just always felt like a real kinship with what they were Mm -hmm. doing um not exactly the same aesthetic or the same approach but the sort of a similar value system and so i think we've always sort of thought of them as in our world um did you ask about print or online? Print, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to online. We're it's funny because, yeah, like, I'm not the biggest print magazine consumer. Biggest, yeah. Like, I admire all these beautiful little journals like Gather and Kinfolk and, and Wilder mm-hmm. and their beautiful objects. But to say that I sit down and read them month to month would not be true. I read New York Magazine. <laughs> and I read The New Yorker. <laughs> and The New Yorker. And that's yeah. about it. And those are magazines that still embrace like a traditional editorial format. Mm-hmm. I think there's something in there. That I think there's space for someone to come out with a design magazine that embraces a more traditional editorial platform mm-hmm. that isn't so maybe like overly earnest or precious or yeah. sweet and soft and all that stuff that sort of seems to be of the moment. Um, before we get to rapid fire, I want to ask you guys a, a question about sort of an overall thought. I read an interview with both of you online and Jill, you said the best advice you'd ever received about your career was from your dad, who's also a journalist. <laughs> and you said, he told me that no amount of schooling would ever teach me what I learn on the job. Um, so what's something that you have both learned running um, sight and scene that surprised you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the funniest thing is the thing that just came to mind was the exception to that, which is that if either of us had any business schooling whatsoever, this might have gone a little bit differently. Um, But in terms of the actual journalism part of it, I mean, I think the most surprising thing I learned is that people like crap. (laughs) That to me was kind of a shock because I don't think I realized it until we got into this doing what we do now yeah because we watch you know we watch what does well and we watch what doesn't and we're like oh god really (laughs) (laughs) but like journalistically speaking neither of us came from a design background monica used to write about music and i used to write about media um and that really was like the 
like thing of it is when I started, I literally, at started an idea, I had almost no information about design whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Everything I learned was on the job. Everything I've learned about making has been from going to people's studios and watching them make something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, that sort of experience and like interacting with with people who are doing the thing you're writing about is the most invaluable thing. I think that's wonderful. And I think you guys shared that with everybody every day. Um, I read online that you both said that you wanted to be sort of known for helping to grow and support the American design scene. And I think especially in New York, but I think nationwide, you've done a wonderful job doing that. So thanks for continuing to to fight the good (laughs) fight. Uh, Before we're done, I want to ask you some quick, very easy rapid fire questions. Um, So get ready question number one uh what's the first website you each load every morning new york times i think it's feedly (laughs) all right very webby um i always love the idea of someone that you look up to sort of inspired by those bumper stickers like what would so-and-so do um who is your ww something do who's the person you kind of always go back to and look up to oh this is really rapid fire, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it can be anyone. Three minute pause. I think in life, a lot of it is my parents. Mm-hmm. That's um, a good one. Editorially. Sometimes I used to do this thing where I would pretend I was, um, oh my God, David Pogue. <laughs> <laughs> because I was, I used to be such a slow writer, and I was like, he is so fast and so productive. Just like pretend you're David Pogue. <laughs> I like that. What would David Pogue do? Yeah. I like it. Mine has absolutely nothing to do with sight unseen, but I've always been obsessed with being Patricia Marks. <laughs> That's a good one. See? That's yeah. I just want her job. You've got one. All right. Uh, what's a brand that you can't get enough of? Hey, it's mm, a good one. Mm-hmm. I I want everything. <laughs> is a really tough one. Um, Cost. I'm trying to think like, oh, I only have a few things from Cost. Really for me, it's J. Crew. J. Crew. I've, that's always my answer too. Oh. Nothing wrong with that. Mm. Totally support John Alliance and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your favorite social media feed, trend, or hashtag? Um, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> or do you hashtag. have one? I like, I see, or what is it? Um, I see faces. <laughs> oh, that's a fun <laughs> one. That's really fun. <laughs> I love I see. Um, and we're, we love um, Pinterest too, but that's obvious. I mean, do you have a favorite hashtag? I think that's a no. Yeah. We start, well, <laughs> we only recently started one where we're making fun of ourselves, which is so sight unseen. What is that? So sight unseen. Like oh, so you, sight unseen. Yeah, so okay. Sight, yeah. So sight unseen. I'm going to look for that. Yeah. Uh, what's a trend in design that you're ready to let go? i.e. take the keep calm posters any of those sorts of things <laughs> i don't even consider that a trend in design <laughs> um, um well it's funny because sometimes we'll, like we're aware that we're perpetuating like some silliness sometimes and we at one point we're like okay we're not going to do any more squiggles and then of oh, course yeah, we yeah. get squiggles <laughs> squiggles are having squiggles a i would right say now. like the the internet aesthetic the um you know, these like young people who are doing like wacky Google image search stuff, you know, like just that weird, like old school internet aesthetic. I'm kind of done with that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. A uh, final question is what's a trend, style, designer, or brand that you hope makes it big this year? Cool. Could be somebody in the shop, not in the shop. Well, we're actually doing a, 
a pop-up um, at Space 98 in Williamsburg in September, and we're working with Sarette from Moving Mountains. And we, she was my favorite. Yeah, from she this has year. such an amazing booth at ICFF. She had an amazing booth at Side on Sinai. She just showed us the renderings right before this radio show for the fixtures for the shop, and we're like, "Yep, done." Like she's so good. Well, to that point, we we have our um, American Design Hot List that we launched last year. We're going to do it again in August, and that will be twenty five designers that we think or hope, whatever think, will make it big this year. So, good. <laughs> can check that out in right. about a month. We'll stay tuned for that and we'll link it up in the, the post oh, cool. afterwards. Gerald and Monica, thanks so much for being here. Thanks Thank for you having for us. having us. I love us. picking your brain. Um, thanks to everybody for listening. Where can we find you guys online? Sightunseen.com. All one word. S-I-G-H-T. Everyone spells it S-I-T-E. It's not a pun. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find us on Pinterest, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those fun places. Perfect. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.